0: Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get right to it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 41 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Catherine Katane has assembled a team of misfits to take on a sinister death cult, but that team has already nearly torn itself apart. Callie Linder's boyfriend, Will, was kidnapped while researching the cult's history, and Kate's partner Lizzie was the last person to see him before he vanished. Callie was convinced that since Lizzie and the cult members were all graduates of Chisholm University, the elite school for Metamore's ruling class, it stood to reason that if there was a mole in their group, Lizzie was probably it. When Kate and Lizzie arrived at Kenning Security, Callie's current base of operations, Callie trapped Lizzie in a force bubble and accused her of betraying Will to the cult. To clear her name, Lizzie shifted back to human form and stripped naked in front of Callie and Kate, proving that she does not have the secret tattoo that the cultists wear to show their allegiance. At this, Callie reluctantly let her go. Lizzie maintained her composure throughout this interrogation, then withdrew to the bathroom where she returned to her full leopard form. Theriamorphs must do this to pay off the shifting stress they accumulate when they become fully human. While Kate briefed the rest of the team on their situation, Morgan Drowling went into the bathroom and kept Lizzie company, until she was able to change back to her usual humanoid form. Lizzie was shaken by being the target of such suspicion and hatred, but Morgan encouraged her, Even though people can be prejudiced against one another in a thousand horrible ways, most of them are also good-hearted and able to learn. While Kate's team plots Will's rescue, another prisoner of the cult is planning his own way out. Jared Tamlin, a police psychologist and a latent telepath, was taken by the cult when he tried to stop Kate from being returned to active duty prematurely. The cult, which calls itself the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre, soon discovered that Jared had the potential to become the Vessel, a messianic figure that they believe will become the mortal host for their divine master, an entity trapped outside reality, which they call the Shackled God. Jared has already passed two of the tests that are required to prove his identity as the Vessel. If he passes the third and fourth tests, then he will be the Vessel, and the Brotherhood will be sworn to obey him. Jared believes this is his only chance of escaping the cult alive. Jared met Will when they were placed in adjoining cells, while Jared awaited the Brotherhood's summons for the third test. The two prisoners exchanged all of the knowledge they had gathered about the cult's history and goals, and Jared promised to get Will out of there safely if he succeeded in becoming the vessel. When the Brotherhood came to interrogate Will, Jared summoned all the authority he could muster and commanded them not to harm the boy. Jared doesn't know it, but he was unconsciously using his latent psychic ability on the cultists, the same soul-shaping power that he had unwittingly used on Danny Shirabi back in the novel Making the Cut. Under Jared's psychic influence, the cultists promised not to cause Will any permanent harm, as long as he cooperated with their questions. Unfortunately for both Will and Jared one very important person was not there to make that promise. The head cultist, a hard, cruel woman known as Mistress Adrastia. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 41 Kate was just finishing the recap on her conversations with Janus and Montgomery when Morgan and Lizzie came out of the bathroom. Kate glanced briefly at Lizzie, then gave Morgan a questioning look. Morgan smiled through closed lips and gave her a very small nod. "'Don't worry,' the look seemed to say. "'Your partner is all right.' "'Sorry about that, everyone,' Lizzie said, nodding politely to the room at large. "'Did I miss anything serious?' "'We're about to get to the serious,' Kate said. "'For us, anyway.' She held up the folder Montgomery had shown her, passed it over to Lizzie. "'The cap showed me the files on the death of his partner, Jacob Valenti. One of the two cops on the scene that night was Rowan Shaw, now the captain of S.I.D. "'Until we get some proof that says otherwise,' We have to assume Shaw is either part of the cult or being used by them in some way. Lizzie looked at her sharply. That seems a little extreme, Kate. Maybe it is, Kate allowed. But Jacob called for a patrol car and ended up shot to death with a service pistol. The patsy they arrested died of cyanide poisoning in police custody. So if I have to be a little paranoid to keep me and my friends alive, I'm going with paranoid. So the cops can't help us. Callie said, an edge of anger in her voice. Big surprise. So how do we find Will? Kate tapped the top of the box. Montgomery and Jacob collected a lot of info on where the cult was performing its rituals. The locations weren't chosen at random. They were targeting mystical weak spots around the city, mana nodes where they could disrupt the barriers between worlds. Trying to reach out to their god, John said. That's what it looks like, yeah. If their plan depends on attacking those weak points, it makes sense that they'd use a lot of the same hideouts. Unless they know those locations are compromised, Brian said. How much does the cult know about what Montgomery and Valenti uncovered? I don't know, Kate admitted. But it's the best lead I have, and we're out of time. We move on this or Will doesn't have a chance. Nathan cleared his throat. We can help narrow things down. The system has been analyzing security footage from all over the city. We tracked down that van that got stolen from the Syndicate brothel. I have a trace on its movements since Friday night, to a 90% confidence interval. Lizzie and Kate exchanged a look. So, Lizzie said, if we find a place where the van's movements intersect with Montgomery's list, we'll know the cult is active there, Kate said. Silas has a bunch of city maps here, Callie offered. Old subway lines, maintenance tunnels, sewer systems. She pointed at the filing cabinets along the wall. Perfect, Kate said. John, Lizzie, Michael, start pulling the files. Use those maps and plot out all the places where the cult was operating. Brian, Nate, you do the same with any stops the van made. Evan, you've been taking Silas's calls from the Runners Guild, right? Evan sat up a bit straighter in his chair. Yes, and everyone's rather on edge at the moment. I hope we haven't all forgotten the incipient gang war between the Syndicates and the Whites. Kate glanced quickly over at Morgan, but the vampire's face betrayed nothing. We haven't forgotten, but that's a separate problem. The cult wanted us focused on the Whites so it would distract us from what they're doing. Right now, I'm more worried about a dark god trying to push into our reality than I am about a street-level turf war. Evan made a conceding gesture. A fair point. What do you need? Delivery schedules, Kate said. Any packages that runners may have delivered to these ritual sites over the last couple weeks. You can't do ritual magic without gents, and the stuff they'd need for a human sacrifice isn't all available in stores. Mark the deliveries on the map. Easily done, Evan assured her. What are we gonna do? Callie asked. Magic. I want to try a location spell for Will. Callie frowned. Those almost never work on people. I know, I know. It's a Hail Mirai play for sure. But Cal, you're the luckiest person I know, so if it's going to work for anybody, it'll be you. I want you to go gather the freshest samples of Will's you can find. Hair, blood, saliva, used tissues, anything connected to him. Morgan, you got your kit with you? It's in the skimmer, Morgan said. Good. You go with her. Make sure the samples are as clean as possible. We'll want a few different kinds of sample. Six, if you can manage it, but I can make do with three. I'll stay here and get the incantation set up. Morgan nodded once. On our way. Kelly and Morgan left, taking Morgan's skimmer. Kate retrieved her field kit from the police cruiser and carried it back upstairs, where she started laying out the intricate figures of the location spell. All around the loft, her unlikely team members were working together. Cops and criminals and civilians, united by a common cause. It's no special investigations, Kate thought. But maybe it's enough. Jared wasn't sure how much time had passed when the Brotherhood returned, but he felt that it must have been hours. He sat by the door of his cell, his face leaning against the mesh, until the light once more appeared at the end of the corridor. Shortly after that came the sound of footsteps, and then the lights separated into four figures bearing electric torches. The body of a fifth figure they carried between them, limp and unmoving. "'What have you done to him?' Jared demanded. "'He will be fine, Doctor. Calm yourself.' The voice came not from one of the four men carrying the body, but from another figure." who followed in the darkness behind them. In the shifting light of the torches, Jared saw the glint of metal on the figure's face. A drastia, Jared said, narrowing his eyes. The four men opened Will's cell and carried him inside. Jared thought he saw Will's chest rise in a breath, but that one glimpse was all he had before the boy disappeared inside the adjoining cell. Adrastia stepped past her fellow cultists and looked down at Jared. The masked woman's lip curled in apparent distaste. You're very confident of your success in our trials, aren't you? Presuming to tell my men what they can and cannot do with my prisoner? Jared bared his teeth at her. What's the matter, Adrastia? Is your great savior not as compliant as you were hoping for? The four men emerged from Will's cell shutting and locking it behind them. She made a set of rapid hand gestures— sign language, perhaps? and stepped aside as they approached Jared's cell. One of them unlocked the door and pulled it open. The two largest men grabbed Jared under each arm and hauled him to his feet. "'Get your hands off me!' Jared snapped. But the men's grip on him did not change. "'They can't hear you, doctor.' Adrastia said, sounding amused. They're under a deafness enchantment. She nodded once, and a third cultist came up behind Jared and gagged him with a heavy strip of cloth. Jared tried to wrestle away, but he was no match for his captors in raw strength. They tied the gag firmly behind his head, then bound his hands behind his back with a set of heavy zip ties. Looks like you won't be using that silver tongue of yours for a while. "'Adrastia said. "'But you should be happy, Doctor. "'Now is the moment you've been waiting for.' "'She made more gestures, "'and two of her men took Jared's elbows "'and started guiding him down the hallway. "'The other two remained behind. "'As he walked down the passage, Jared passed a line of other cultists "'carrying buckets of water, mops, brooms, "'a cordless hand vacuum, and other cleaning implements. "'What are they doing?' "'Your time in that cell is over, doctor,' Adrastia said, as if sensing his thoughts. "'Either you will succeed in the third trial, and begin your journey as the vessel, or you will fail, and we will give your body to the river. Either way, no trace of you will remain here.' "'So this is it,' Jared thought. He felt a mixture of dread and relief. One way or another, this nightmare would be over soon.' But what's going to happen to Will? And for that matter, what happened to Silas? He couldn't ask. Even if he could, he wasn't sure Adrastia would answer. But when the cleaning crew was followed by another group of cultists, this one armed with ritual knives, candles, and two bags full of spellcasting equipment, he was afraid he wasn't going to like the answer. Callie and Morgan were gone a little less than an hour, which gave Kate the time to put the finishing touches on her spell prep. Most of her ritual magic didn't take nearly so long to set up, but location spells were a notoriously finicky sort of divination, especially when they involved living beings. Not only did people move around a lot, creating traces of their presence that varied over time, but their bodies were constantly scattering bits of themselves, cast off hairs, flakes of skin, bodily fluids, and replacing worn-out pieces with new ones. A location spell might pick up where a person had been an hour or a day or a month before, or lock in on their discarded fingernail clippings, or simply fail to produce a reading at all. Kate built the spell very carefully, both in her mind and in the pattern of arcane symbols she traced out on the floor of Silas's loft so that she could minimize all the potential sources of interference and confusion. When the lift doors opened and Callie and Morgan emerged, Kate sat cross-legged in her caster's circle, holding her silver arthana with both hands. The ritual dagger was bound to the elemental aspect of air, Kate's chosen field of mastery. With her mana channeled through the arthana, Kate could command the forces of wind, weather, thought, memory— movement, and her specialty, illusion. Aircasters like Kate also had an affinity for finding lost items, and it was that affinity she counted on to help her now. Kelly knelt beside Kate, outside the boundaries of her casting circle, and opened her messenger bag. She took out four small evidence bags, containing some hairs, a toothbrush, a pair of rumpled boxers, and a cluster of crumpled tissues. She also produced a well-worn copy of the Canticle of Eli and a small photograph of Will, smiling in the square outside Kaia's citadel. Six items. Good, Kate said. Her voice came out low and even, as she kept most of her attention on the shape of the spell in her mind. Absently, she gestured at the six candles she had laid out at equidistant points around the primary casting circle forming the two intersecting triangles of a hexagram. Each candle was connected to a smaller circle outside the large one, a segment of which was intentionally missing. This would allow objects to be placed inside them without disrupting the spell. Put them in and close the circles. Quickly, Callie laid each of the items in their appropriate places. Taking up a piece of chalk Kate had left out for the purpose... Callie then drew in the missing segment of each circle. Kate felt a gentle pop of magical energy as each circle was completed, connecting its contents to the spell she was building in her mind. With the objects came a kind of arcane resonance. Every caster experienced it differently, but Kate felt it like a set of complementary vibrations, like the same set of notes being played at different octaves and on different instruments. This pattern was the magical signature of Will himself, the same pattern Kate would see if she studied his aura carefully with her arcane sight. Each person's signature was unique. According to some theories, it was an emission of that person's soul. Kate drew on that resonance now, building it into the weave of her magic, amplifying the signal. The strength of the resonance grew and grew, reflecting back and forth against the walls of her magic circle. Kate gradually added more mana to the spell, like a mother pushing her child on a swing set, making him swing higher and higher. Holding the spell now required almost every bit of her focus and concentration. She spoke slowly and deliberately, like a person handling explosives. Kelly, I'm ready for the map now. Callie got to her feet, quickly and silently, and crossed the loft to the kitchen table. Kate did not watch her. She kept her eyes closed to better focus on the spell, but she knew that the others had been working on the map for the last hour, cross-referencing all their available sources of knowledge to create a list of possible hideouts for the cult. No one spoke, but Kate heard the soft rustling of the map as they carried it over to the opposite side of the circle. Ready, Lizzie said. Kate opened her eyes. Callie and Lizzie held up the map between them, facing her. An assortment of differently colored dots peppered the broad sheet of paper, some scattered seemingly at random, while others followed straight lines or meandering paths. What the different colors represented wasn't important now. Kate looked for the places where dots clustered together and lines intersected. Someone had marked these junctions with heavy black X's. There were more than a dozen of them, far too many to investigate them all. That was where Kate's spell came in. She directed her focus toward those X's, and the places in the real city they represented. With this final refinement in place, Kate spoke the words that would complete the spell. Muina Panto! As she completed the incantation, Kate moved her Arthana in a circle through the air in front of her. The motion released the spell out into the world, through the focus of the map. That resonance she had amplified, that mystic fingerprint of Will's soul and personality, reverberated out into the world, and when it found its likeness, it reflected back. One of the X's on the map suddenly lit up with a brilliant blue-green fire, the same color as Kate's aura. It faded again within seconds, but the spot burned indelibly into Kate's eidetic memory. We've got it, she said. It's on the lower west side. Let me see that map. She got up as quickly as she could manage, given that she'd been sitting motionless for nearly an hour. Lizzie brought the map over and gave her a shoulder to lean on while she worked the numbness out of her legs. 23rd Street and... Lamplighter, Kate said, squinting at the map. Nathan, give me everything you've got on that location. Nathan's fingers danced over the keyboard. Images appeared across all three screens. Schematics, municipal maps, security camera footage, and more. There's an old water treatment center down there, he said. Direct access to the underground river and the sewer system. Commuter tunnels to north, south, and east. Oh, and an old subway line. Sealed off now, but it probably wouldn't be too hard to fix that. "'Lots of ways in and out without being noticed,' John observed. "'What's on top of it now?' Morgan asked. "'Nathan clicked through a few more windows. "'Nothing yet. "'I'm seeing a building permit for something called Grey Ghost Development?' "'That's a house drowling firm,' Morgan said. "'My Uncle Jerome runs it.' "'There was a drowling in the Midnight Snatcher Files,' Lizzie said, sounding apologetic. "'There could be a connection.' Whoever they are, they've held that land since the treatment plant closed, Nathan said. It doesn't look like they've ever done anything with it. All right, let's mount up, Kate said. She pointed to Silas's gun safe. Anybody who can shoot, grab a weapon. Don't forget extra ammo. If you've never fired a gun before, for profit's sake, don't start now. Callie opened the safe and allowed Morgan, John, Lizzie, and Michael to help themselves to suitable weapons. Kelly selected a long sniper rifle for herself. In the event they needed covering fire for their mission, she was the only one trained to use it, and her supernatural luck would be extremely helpful with such a precision weapon. John, taking the exact opposite approach, decided on a semi-automatic shotgun with a shortened barrel, then accompanied it with a pair of long hunting knives, which he carried in sheaths strapped to his belt. The blades were of a centuries-old design, made by folding two different types of steel together at relatively low temperatures. The result was a beautiful, rippling pattern that ran all along the weapon's length. Kate suspected that John had chosen them at least halfway for the aesthetic value. The others took handguns of varying sizes, from Morgan's 12 millimeter big game pistol to an elegant 9 millimeter snub nose for Lizzie. Kate was content with her own sidearm and pocket pistol but she took a few extra mags of ammunition from Silas's reserves. Evan waved her over to where he sat by the kitchen table. Brian had taken the seat next to him, and the two men seemed to be engaged in a hushed conversation. "'I do hope you won't take it amiss if I sit out the impending violence,' Evan said when Kate approached. Kate waved a hand. "'Don't worry about it. From what Morgan tells me, you were lucky to get away from those thugs.' She looked at Brian. And I know. You're a family man, and this isn't your fight. No hard feelings. Brian nodded. Thank you for understanding. He glanced across the room, to where the others were still engaged in selecting their arsenal, and lowered his voice. Miss Miskatine, there has been another development we thought you should know about. Kate frowned and leaned in closer. What's up? she asked matching their tone. We've been monitoring police chatter, and there's an officer who's been reported missing from Precinct 9. Fear and anger clenched at Kate's gut. Those are my people, she thought fiercely, if somewhat irrationally, since she'd already left the precinct to join SID. Who is it? The staff psychologist, Dr. Jared Tamlin. Brian paused, apparently reading the look of stunned realization on Kate's face. "'I see you know him?' "'He... I was his patient.' Slowly, Kate eased into the chair next to Brian. "'By the prophet,' she whispered. "'I saw him. He was in my dream.' Brian and Evan exchanged a worried look. "'Would this be the dream?' Evan asked carefully, where a dark presence from outside our reality was attempting to touch your mind. Um, yeah, Kate said. Oh, Eli, you don't think... Brian reached over and gripped her hand. Miss Katane, I need you to listen to me. We've had dealings with Jared Tamlin several years ago. He's a latent psi, but he's not like any psi I've ever seen. He can change people on a subconscious level. What they want, what they think is important. Our mutual friend Artax believed he could change people's souls, Evans said gravely. Kate stared. You're kidding. Tamlin? He couldn't change somebody's mind about what to have for dinner. I went to therapy with him for weeks, and we never... got... anywhere... She trailed off as her mind caught up with her words. Because you just so happen to be immune to mind control, Evan suggested. Kate fell silent for a full five seconds. Fuck, she said feelingly. Our thoughts exactly, Evan said. Kate glanced quickly between them. You say he changed people. Changed them how? Mostly in pretty harmless ways, Brian said. You see Nathan over there? Jared had one conversation with him, and he matured by about ten years. Started being more polite, more responsible, dressing better. I think he could have done with a few more conversations, Evan observed. That doesn't sound so bad, Kate said. But he also ran into our friend Daniel when he was trying out a spell to become a woman, Evan said. He leaned forward, fixing Kate with his striking violet eyes. Jared was so smitten with Danny that before two weeks were out, he'd convinced her to become an androgyne, and to marry him. His influence was so strong that Daniel and Danny's soul split in two. A first-generation androgyne somehow became two completely separate personalities, even more so than Ava and I. Kate shook her head. That's crazy. Are you sure we're talking about the same guy? The Tamlin I know isn't married. We managed to get Danny away from him before they could go through with it, Brian said. She spent a few days in Artax's magic rehab center before she came to her senses. Kate sank back into her chair. Fuck, she said again. No wonder he's such a hack. With a power like that, he wouldn't have to be good at his job. "'The important thing is that he doesn't know that's why he's good at his job,' Brian said. "'Like I said, his power is latent. "'He can only use it subconsciously, "'and he's such a weak telepath that his talent only works on people when he's very close to them. "'But if he ever understood what he can do and learned to control it, "'even with the best intentions, he could still do a lot of harm.' "'Kate nodded absently. "'Her mind was racing.' thinking back over the dream where she'd encountered Tamlin. He said that the cult had captured him. They think he's their chosen one. He has to prove it to them somehow or they're going to kill him. Oh, gods. Brian took off his glasses, then wiped his face with his free hand. Evan looked at least as disturbed as Brian. The handsome androgyne had broken out in a sweat across his pale brow. Is it uncharitable of me to cheer for option two? Kate glared at him. He's still police, and as much as he annoys me, I think he's a good person. So no, Evan, we are not rooting for the cult to murder him. Brian opened his eyes again. He looked up at her, bleakly. Then you'd better hurry up and find him, Miss Catane. Jared Tamlin might be a good man now. But if this cult manages to unlock his latent talents, I don't think he'll stay that way for long. And that's the end of Chapter 41. Come back next time, when Kate and her team launch their rescue mission, and Jared begins his third trial with the Brotherhood. Meg Cabot said, Write the kind of story you would like to read. People will give you all sorts of advice about writing, but if you're not writing something you like, no one else will like it either. So let me tell you what I've been working on lately. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,982 words this week. Over the course of 8.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 704 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 175 days without breaking my chain. This week I finished my sci-fi ghost story romance, The Nearness of You. The manuscript came to 12,020 words, which I wrote over a total of 13 work days, between June 2016 and this month. It took me 15.75 hours to write this story. After finishing The Nearness of You on Monday, I went back and picked up another old, unfinished story. This is a Metamore City tale about Kevin, who was Daniel's pyrokinetic roommate back in making the cut. The story was originally called The Way is in the Heart, which I took from one of those online quotes attributed to the Buddha. It turns out that quote is actually a pretty terrible mistranslation, though, so I've chosen a different title based on another Buddha quote which I verified is legit this time. The new title is All the World of Fire, and I added about 2,000 words to the story this week. And now, the feedback. Chris writes, After hearing about Metamore City on Nobilis Erotica, as well as listening to his three stories in the city, I tried out the podcast. After a month, I listened to every episode at least twice, and patiently waited for each new episode of The Lost in the Least, until I realized we hadn't gotten halfway through the book. I quickly purchased the ebook from Amazon, and now I can't wait till the next one. What's worse is, I can't help but feeling everything so far is only the opening shots in a greater, epic conflict to come. Keep up the excellent work. Thanks very much, Chris. You're absolutely right. Making the cut, Things Unseen, and many of the short stories were all laying the groundwork for my epic story arc, which I'm calling The Last Prophecy. With The Lost and the Least, the real bad guys are finally revealed, and that's why I'm so excited to be sharing this book with you now. I'm expecting three or four more big novels before this story arc is finished. If you can't get enough Metamore City, my new novel Homecoming is available for pre-order on Amazon, and the book will be released on June 1st. This is a side adventure for John and Kate, not part of the Last Prophecy story arc, but I think fans of these characters will find a lot to love here. I also recommend checking out Nobilis' story collection, Quicksilver Bridges. He has a lot more Metamore stories in there than just the three that appeared on the podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is Facebook.com slash Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at Wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.